I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by Kevin Daly of The Daily Caller, and we're talking about the court hearing yet another Obamacare challenge, the first merits opinion of the term, and I also recently sat down with Third Circuit Judge Stephanos Bebas. Kevin, welcome back to SCOTUS 101. Always a pleasure to be on the pod. So for fans of Tiffany, don't worry, she'll be back in the new year. She was just a little busy this week. So first up in SCOTUS news, uh, the court issued its first two merits opinions of the term. First up, they were riveting reads, let me tell you. First up was Rotkitsky versus Clem, which was an 8-1 opinion by Justice Thomas. And the question there was whether there is a discovery rule that tolls the one-year statute of limitation in the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. So the court held that absent the application of an equitable doctrine, the statute of limitation in the act begins to run when the alleged violation occurs, not when it is discovered. So the relevant provision says an action must be brought within one year from the date on which the violation occurs. So writing for the majority, Justice Thomas said that the text unambiguously sets the date of the violation as the event that starts the act's one-year limitations period, and that adopting the petitioner's discovery rule approach would require improper atextual supplementation of the statute. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg dissented from the opinion in part and from the judgment. She agreed with the majority that the limitations period ordinarily commences to run on the date uh, the the violation occurred, but said that uh, this time trigger doesn't apply when fraud on the creditor's part accounts for the debtor's failure uh, to sue within one year of the violation. Citing uh, Justice Joseph Story, she wrote, every statute is to be expounded reasonably so as to suppress and not to extend the mischiefs which it was designed to cure. Not every day you see Justice Ginsburg uh, citing Justice Story. Also, not every day that we see Justice Ginsburg not producing the first merits term, <laughs> a merits opinion of the term. That's true. That's her streak true. is broken now. <laughs> Justice Thomas uh, beat her. Uh, so she says the respondent here allegedly employed fraudulent service to obtain and conceal a default judgment that precipitated the petitioner's fair debt collection practices claim. And if proven, that allegation would permit adjudication of the petitioner petitioner's claim on it, on the merits. Now, the majority found that the petitioner uh, had not properly preserved this issue for the court's review. Okay, the second opinion was in uh, Peter versus Nantquest, which was an, a unanimous opinion by Justice Sotomayor. Uh, the issue is whether the phrase, all the expenses of the proceedings in 35 U.S.C. Section 145 includes the personnel expenses the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office incurs when its employees, including its attorneys, defend the agency in Section 145 litigation. So the court held that the agency cannot recover salaries of its legal personnel under Section 145. Justice Sotomayor noted that no statute is exempt from the presumption against fee shifting. This is known as the American rule that litigants typically pay for their own expenses. And although, although there are some circumstances deviating from the American rule, the plain text of 145 does not overcome this presumption against fee shifting. So really riveting opinions <laughs> to kick off uh, the beginning of the term. Moving on, um, the court granted cert in one new case that I suppose it will add to the spring calendar uh, since we last since we last met, and that's Carney versus Adams. Uh, the issue there is uh, it's challenging uh, 
the Delaware Constitution's limit on the number of judges affiliated with one political party to a bare minimum on the state's three highest courts, uh, with other seats reserved for judges affiliated with the other major political party. There's another provision saying the judges who are not members of the majority party on those courts must be members of the other major political party. And a retired lawyer who is a registered independent challenged these provisions as violations of his right to be considered for public office without regard to his political affiliation. The Supreme Court added a an additional question that it wants the parties to look into, which is whether the respondent has demonstrated in Article 3 uh, that he has Article Three standing. Uh, so, Kevin, any thoughts on uh, this case? Yeah. So, just to, to follow on on the standing issue, uh, there's the possibility of a dig lurking out there with this case, which I always take really personally. Uh, <laughs> you know, because we we in the press, um, you know, spend so much time learning about these issues before the justices hear argument, and then when they just dismiss them shortly after the argument, it feels like we're being hazed. <laughs> what um, are you going to do with all this knowledge about the Delaware Constitution? Exactly, it's completely useless now. <laughs> so, um, Oh, go ahead. The, the other thing that's that's kind of funny about this case uh, is that the court has allowed um, uh, you know state governments and, and politicians and the like to take uh, partisan affiliation into account in hiring when the position in question is kind of a policymaking role. Mm-hmm. So this uh, forces the uncomfortable question of whether judges ought to be considered policymakers, which is a very impolitic thing to say, yeah. <laughs> but it will be front and center in this case. And one interesting note is that former Tenth Circuit Judge Michael McConnell, who is now in private practice, uh, represents the Delaware Governor John Carney in in the action. That's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. So then there was also a recent denial that's gotten a decent amount of press. This is EMW Women's Surgical Center versus Meyer. It's a First Amendment challenge to Kentucky's law requiring doctors, as part of informed consent, to display and describe an ultrasound of a baby uh, and make any fetal heartbeat uh, heartbeats audible to the mother before performing an abortion, provided that the mother can avert her eyes and request the volume be turned off. So the Sixth Circuit upheld this law in an opinion by uh, Judge John Bush, explaining that the Supreme Court's 2018 ruling in Nifla versus Becerra clarified uh, that no heightened scrutiny applies to an informed consent statute if it compels disclosure of information that is truthful, non-misleading, and relevant to an abortion. So, Kevin, what do you what do you make of the court not taking up this case? Uh, not too much. Um, I think the the NIFLA decision probably explains a lot here. The court literally last year said something about compelled speech in abortion clinics. So I think perhaps their attitude was we're happy to let that percolate a little bit more before we wade back into that area. Uh, it was a very good petition. Uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Fisher uh, was on the petition. Um, uh, as well as uh, David Cole and the ACLU gang, and they and they framed this uh, as a NIFLA follow-on, as your uh, listeners may remember. At issue in, in NIFLA versus Becerra uh, was a California state law that required pro-life crisis pregnancy centers to make certain representations about the availability of state-funded abortions, among other things. Uh, to their clients, uh, California in part justified this law by saying, um, you know, well, there's this thing called, uh, you know, the professional speech doctrine that's lurking out there in some of the circuits, and that allows the state to regulate uh, at least certain speech that is made by licensed professionals when they are acting in their official capacity. Uh, and Justice Thomas, writing for the majority uh, in NIFLA, kind of pushes back on uh, on that idea. He says words to the effect that uh, speech is not unprotected simply because it's uttered by professionals and here the petitioners say, yes, just so. And we are being compelled uh, to make certain representations here. Um, but I, I think uh, just because NIFLA was decided so recently, the court is kind of happy to let this percolate. And of course, they have another abortion case 
coming up in yeah. uh, in the February sitting. So perhaps they only want one abortion case this term. Moving on to oral arguments this week, uh, the court heard uh, several oral arguments, including in three consolidated cases brought by insurance companies claiming the federal government owes them roughly $12 billion. Uh, so just to give a little bit of background about the case, when Congress passed the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare as some people call it, back in 2010, it set up the Risk Corridors Program to incentivize insurers to offer coverage to people considered risky, so people who were previously uninsured or those with pre-existing conditions. Uh, the insurers would agree to offer affordable plans through the health exchanges, and they would pay a portion of any savings into the program if their costs were lower than expected. And if their costs were higher than expected, the government was supposed to reimburse them for a portion of their losses for three years. Uh, well, their costs ended up being uh, astronomically more than anyone expected. And uh, the, you know, the insurers uh, began offering these plans in 2014. And then Congress effectively defunded the program uh, through appro- appropriations riders, saying any reimbursements would have to be made from funds that were paid into the program. So insurers ended up paying uh, paying in about $480 million. And following the statutory formula that Congress came up with, the government owed roughly $12 billion. So the government refused to pay up. The insurers sued for damages, arguing that the, the government had breached an implied contract and violated the statute. Uh, the federal circuit ruled for the government, saying Congress impliedly repealed the relevant provision with its appropriations writers and that the statute didn't bind the government into a contract. So Paul Clement represented the insurance companies, and this was his 99th Supreme Court argument. And his third argument this sitting. Yeah, he's a busy guy. Uh, and Deputy Solicitor General Edwin Needler argued on behalf of the government. So a number of the justices seemed sympathetic to the insurer's claims that this was, uh, as Clement calls it, a $12 billion bait and switch. Um, so Chief Justice Roberts, one of the things that he brought up was that, um, you know, why didn't the insurers insist on an appropriations provision before putting themselves on the hook? He says, look, these are sophisticated companies. They have great lawyers. Uh, and the Constitution says no money shall come out of the Treasury except pursuant to an appropriations clause. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh brought up the fact that Congress knows how to prevent the government right. from being financially obligated uh, when it wants to. The, the relevant provision says the government shall pay and Congress could have added subject to appropriations. Uh, Justice Kagan agreed with this, saying, you know, that would have put people on notice that the funds were not guaranteed. Uh, but Deputy S.G. Needler said that that was an overreading of the statute. Um, I don't know what your takeaways were from the argument. I think you covered uh, all my bases. Those are the the big comments that I wanted to highlight. I would say that there is one uh, possible wrinkle for the insurers here. Uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, seemed to suggest that um, the uh, petitioners were relying uh, on an implied cause of action here. They were not uh, bringing this case pursuant to a a congressionally authorized cause. Uh, And of course, the Supreme Court generally disfavors implied causes of action. Another thing that came up, Justice Alito was pretty skeptical. He of, was really, yeah, he was really the only friend that the the government had in yeah. this argument. <laughs> and he wanted to know. Uh, he asked Paul Clement where the money should come from if it's not in the risk quarters program, aside from the judgment fund, which is uh, the fund that's used to pay judgments against the federal government. And Clement said, well, he couldn't identify any other funds specifically, uh, but he explained that that in it of itself doesn't make the government's obligation go away, just that they don't have the money uh, ready to go. 
Clement explained that if in 2014 Congress had been a little more forthright with the insurers, uh, that payments from the risk quarters program would be limited, they may have done things a little differently. He also made a, a general point towards the end of the argument, kind of a, an institutional point, asking whether the Supreme Court has ever uh, forced Congress to pay out an appropriation on the order of billions of dollars, although I also think that um, when you have to fall back on this kind of broad institutional arguments, it's probably not going very well for you. Um, I, I think another interesting exchange that kind of highlights um, why Paul Clement is Paul Clement. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier that uh, Justice Kavanaugh had pointed out that, that Congress knows um, when to make clear that it is uh, taking on mandatory obligations that shall pay language versus subject to appropriations. Uh, on, on remand, Clement got up and said that he had assigned one of his associates uh, to look into that very issue uh, and to count how many times that phrase subject to appropriations appears in the U.S. Code. And when the associate had found 200 such instances, he said the associate could stop. <laughs> uh, so Justice Gorsuch did not say anything at the no, argument. No, he was, he was quite sphinx-like. And, you know, Justice Thomas uh, typically doesn't ask questions. He did not have anything to say. Uh, I want to point out, though, that this is the fifth case stemming from Obamacare to reach the Supreme Court. It's the gift that keeps on giving to the Supreme Court bar. Sure. Uh, and there is, in fact, another case that could be headed to the Supreme Court in the next year or so, this one attacking the individual mandate provision. Uh, but it's currently pending in the Fifth Circuit. I believe oral argument was heard last summer and so we could have an opinion. That will ruin my Christmas. Yeah, it could. And yours too. <laughs> Definitely. Well, you know, it might be a gift. True. Uh, but moving on, I recently sat down with Judge Bebus. Stephanos Bebus is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Judge Bebus, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. I'd like to start by talking about your family. Your father survived the Nazi occupation of Greece and came to the United States with the clothes on his back. So tell me a little bit about your father and how his example shaped who you are. My dad is one of these amazing self-made men. He fled in a small rowboat with his family to their ancestral island when the Nazis came into Greece. He left the Athens area and hid out an island for four years, uh, scavenging and living in a, a shack with his brother and sister and his mother and uncle. And he came to this country uh, with the clothes on his back after sailing around the world in the Merchant Marine. He's just a self-made man. He uh, cut hair and made donuts for 16 hours a day and then opened one diner or restaurant after another. And he loved this country and he loved the opportunity that it gave him. He also raised my brother and me working summers in his restaurants. Gave us a deep appreciation for the value of hard work, for the ability of people to, to succeed on their own, and, the, and just gratitude for the opportunity this country had given us. And so Dad tried to entice me into the restaurant business or doing restaurant law with him. I, I knew too much from my own summers working there to, to want to go back to that, but I'm, I'm deeply grateful for giving me all the opportunities he never had. Shifting gears a bit, I understand you're a deacon in the Orthodox Church. Can you tell me a little bit about your church for those who may not have heard of it? Sure. The Christian church was one for a thousand years. In the 11th century, there was a split between the West, which became known as Roman Catholic, and the East that became Orthodox. Um, I was a Greek immigrant's kid. I was baptized in the, the Greek Orthodox Church, but it didn't understand very much. It was literally Greek to me. And uh, <laughs> when I got to college and discovered there was, there was uh, worship in English, uh, that's what got me hooked. But, you know, being clergy is, is different. 
you know, there's not an easy legalistic answer to things. You have to meet people where they are. You have to listen to them. You have to learn how to speak their language. And I also just find that praying and clearing one's mind of email and all the things in one's plate is, is very important for the, for the body and for the soul. That's wonderful. Okay, so now let's dig into your career. So after graduating from Columbia at age 19 and then going to Oxford and Yale Law School, you clerked for Judge Patrick Higginbotham on the Fifth Circuit and Justice Anthony Kennedy. So tell me about your time in each of their chambers. Judge Higginbotham and uh, Justice Kennedy were both wonderful mentors. Both of them had been longtime trial lawyers, and Judge Higginbotham had also been a trial judge. And it was a very good thing for a young lawyer to kind of learn at their sides. For one thing, if you've got any kind of northerner stereotypes about southerners, as I did as a New Yorker, you'd hear Judge Higginbotham's Alabama accent and then be just taken aback by how whip smart he was in a very kind of self-effacing way, but he just cut to the heart of issues. But both of them got me to appreciate the wisdom of juries, the importance of thinking about the practicality of how a rule is going to work, and of trying to explain decisions to the losing litigant and to the common people. Um, and that, and moreover, both of them were very humane, decent people to all the ones around them. And so those are the kinds of examples I try to try to carry forward and pass the torch by mentoring my own clerks and, and trying to figure out how to talk to the losing litigant and and the public in, in decisions. The point is not to seem fancy, but to, to, to clarify and help people understand the law. So then you served as an assistant U.S. attorney. And during that time, you prosecuted a case involving Tiffany Stained Glass. Tell me about that experience. So I was a brand new prosecutor, and I inherited a fake art case. And I told the FBI agent, hey, this is interesting. I wrote my student note on the stolen art market. Let me know if you have any other art cases that come your way. Well, I've been a prosecutor for a month. It was at dead time right around Christmas and New Year's. I got a call uh, saying that the FBI stolen car squad had a tip that someone was talking about having stolen a stained glass window and stealing something for a foreign collector. So we introduced an undercover agent and learned that this high school dropout grave robber had was was talking about doing business with some wealthy collectors who wanted stained glass windows. They haven't been there been a there are only about a thousand of them in existence and most of them are tied up in cemeteries or churches. Well when we started to get into the case we found that he was actually doing this to order for the world's leading expert in Tiffany stained glass. Uh and so it was one of these classic work-up-the-chain cases where we got the, the low-level guy, the, the grave robber, to rat out the middleman uh, who had brokered the deal and then get us all the way up to the expert. The problem in a case like that is that your witnesses are the people who've been involved in the crime, and they're disreputable. Uh, <laughs> but we put uh, body recorders and microphones on them and got them to engage in a bunch of conversations. And the tricky thing is always to show someone's mental state that he knew he was dealing with stolen art. Um, But after several months of these backs and forths, finally we went in and arrested the top guy. And it was a high-profile trial in New York for almost two weeks. And our witness is this grave robber. 
So he went on direct examination, and we told him not to look at the papers. But the headline the second day of trial was, The Ghoul of Gotham, Queen's <laughs> Dropout Tells of 15-Year Career Robbing Cemeteries. And I said, just get a grip. You've got to get a grip. Obviously, uh, uh, the defense attorney was a very able attorney and did a great job of trying to cross-examine him and the other witnesses, but the tapes are what the tapes are. And at the end of the day, the jury came back with convictions on all counts. And we're very proud because it's very important to do equal justice, you know, even no matter how rich or well-connected you are, that you know that you're you're not immune from the law. And the, the stolen art market needs more oversight of, of some things with questionable provenance. After that, you went on to do a brief stint in private practice, and then you landed in academia. During mm-hmm. your time as a law professor, you argued six cases at the Supreme Court. So tell me about arguing before the high court. I'd been a public speaker and debater for nine years, and old debaters never die. They just <laughs> become litigators. Uh, when I got to Penn and uh, another former clerk of Justice Kennedy talked me into uh, trying to start this Supreme Court clinic, I, I, the first case I wound up with was a case against Seth Waxman, the former Solicitor General. Uh, and that was March of 2011. I was going to argue it. And then in January of that year, I got a call from the clerk's office at the Supreme Court saying the government was declining to defend a certain criminal conviction that was going to be argued before the Supreme Court in April of 2011. And would I please accept an appointment from the court to uh, argue that case? And I said, you, you know, I have my first SCOTUS case in the month before in March, I said, yes, yes, but Justice Kennedy would like to appoint you and knows you, you know, uh, it, it would be a great service to the court. It was a sentencing law case, which is one of my areas of expertise. And so my first two cases at the court, I was waking up at four in the morning. Uh, I had to write the first brief and then the second brief and then do the first set of moots and then the second set of moots back to back. It was this uh, enormous adrenaline rush with, with, with two little kids at home. But I always hold up in a hotel room down in D.C. Well, first thing, I would I would do a lot of moves, five, six moves. I, some people get stale. I never felt I did. I always wanted to know every possible question ahead of time. And my very first case I argued, um, Turner versus Rogers. At the fifth moot on Friday before the argument, I got this question about what was the fraction of people who were ever denied appointment of counsel after they applied for it. The, the question was, well, isn't it just a formality? Doesn't everybody get a rubber stamp their applications for appointed counsel? I said, I, I don't think so, but I don't know. So I sent a student off to research this over the weekend. The student came back to me with email Sunday night or Monday, finding some statistics from New York. And then Tuesday or Wednesday of the next week, I gave my argument. and. Justice Kagan had been sitting back, and she leaned forward with his zinger and said, but Mr. Beavis, don't courts routinely rubber stamp these appointments to counsel? They're not getting denied, are they? And I said, well, Your Honor, according to the figures I've seen, on average, 10 to 20 percent of these are denied. In some places, it's as high as 35 percent. And so she sat back with this satisfied smile, saying, oh, you've done your homework. Uh, <laughs> but my, my, my student, the most exciting thing was my student a few rows back, saying, Professor Davis said my answer, or my words to the justices ears. Um, and that's the exciting part about it, where the students, and you all learn, there's not a, 
an obvious right answer ahead of time. We're all working together to, to do the best we can, and it, it does wind up going to the court, and the court listens very carefully. So that was it's, it's very gratifying, but there is no substitute for just exhaustive preparation and flashcards <laughs> and just weeks and months of living a case. So did you have any rituals or good luck charms before your arguments? Uh, usually what I'd do is I would be down in a hotel in D.C. for two or three days. I'd prep intensively. I'd reread the cases. And once in a while, I found a last minute on the sixth or seventh reading of a case and a way to distinguish it. But the day before, I'd go take a bike ride around uh, D.C., you know, maybe soak in a hot bath and you know, reread the outline one more time. Just just try to decompress for the last 12 or 24 hours. Pray, maybe read something non-legal. So now you're on the other side of the bench. So how has the transition been from the academy to the federal bench? Well, it's it's interesting. Because I was running the Supreme Court clinic, I was working cases with students, and I was mentoring them. Sometimes they'd be sitting right by my side as we were jointly drafting. And so a lot of what I do with my clerks is like a more intensive version of that. Uh, I I did have to give up teaching for a year, and I missed that. And now I'm back to teaching part-time with my chief judge's uh, approval. Uh, but it, a lot of what you do in terms of teaching the clerks how to think about cases is the same. And it's certainly true that not all of the cases have been perhaps briefed or lawyered quite as well as one might wish. So a lot of what this, the clerks and I are doing is trying to figure out things on our own. What's the what's the best way to understand this? Are there are there new lines of question or we should have the parties brief or address an argument? Um, and how does this case fit into the whole realm of the rest of the law. And that's something you get at the Supreme Court. You have to be thinking three cases down the road or five. You have to be thinking about how your case fits with other existing doctrines. Um, and it's it's just exciting doing it from the other side. But there will always be a part of me or any advocate who misses the adrenaline rush of, of, of the chase of, of being the one who's mounting the argument as an advocate. So your chambers are in Philadelphia. So I have to ask, what's the best place to get a cheesesteak? Definitely not Pat's or Gino's on on Passyunk. I mean, they're they're very touristy, um, but they are they are so drowned in grease that it's difficult to really enjoy the <laughs> cheesesteak. You know, Reading Terminal Market or or Steve's Prince of Steaks. There's some other really good ones downtown. But it's what taught me: if you get the cheesesteak with the cheese whiz, the bun will fall apart. If you get the <laughs> cheesesteak with American cheese. It protects the bun from sopping it all up, and then you have a manageable sandwich. So uh, that's my advice on getting a cheesesteak. But I like it with the hot peppers, too. With hot peppers. Okay. So uh, do you have anything in your chambers that represents where you're from or your personality, anything like that? Yeah. I have uh, a series. I have some of my courtroom sketches from the, the grave robber case, from a couple of cases I've argued before the Supreme Court, and a nice letter from... Justice Ginsburg and a photo from from Justice Kennedy. So there's kind of that that SCOTUS corner of the chambers. I have a few maps up. I like old maps. Um, I have a whole prayer corner in there. Um, But, you know, we just moved in a year ago, so we're still making it home. I now have my first couple of classes of clerks' photos up on the wall. So now I've heard about running marathons with Judge Hardiman and attending baseball games with Judge Strauss. 
Have you started any traditions or regular outings with your clerks? Yeah, a couple of things. One of my very first clerks had come from the DA's office, and they would take a mid-afternoon break and go climb the stairs in the building. And so we decided we were going to start. Uh, so once a week or so, we take the elevator down to two and climb all the way up to, to 22 and get our get our uh, hearts uh, beating as we talk about, I don't know, whatever's in the news or, or, or uh, just just something other than the cases that we're working on at the moment. But that's one of the big things we do. We've done a couple of escape rooms with my clerks uh, and actually my boys as well, who just just loved it. Um, so that's that, that, those are among our bonding rituals. We try to go out for for lunch once a week and you know maybe take a walking tour, you know, walk through the Italian market and go grazing or or something like that. Mm, that sounds great. So a lot of listeners are young lawyers. What do you wish you had known when you were just starting out? I wish someone had gotten me not only to get into court, to watch some court proceedings, but to read a lot of great briefs. I think the best education you can get for an appellate lawyer is to go and read briefs from the Solicitor General's office, from Many of the top Supreme Court practitioners, you know, former solicitor generals or alumni of that office. Um, I think uh, anyone who has any interest in, in trial level litigation ought to get in and watch some jury trials, maybe sentencing, guilty pleas, dispositive motion arguments. But there's no substitute for apprenticing. And I think the third year of law school, it's a good thing to try to find some kind of apprenticeship like that whether it be the Supreme Court clinic, another clinic, an externship, but some other way to get your hands dirty uh, instead of just reading cases out of a book. (laughs) Definitely a better way to get experience. All right, one final question, uh, something that we ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? I'd want to have Justice Jackson and talk about the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal. I think that is the most amazing thing that a, 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 a lawyer from our country has done, and being able to translate the fundamental importance of, of justice and the rule of law in talking to these uh, judges from other countries. The, 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 the Soviets wanted to just line the Nazis up against a wall and shoot them, and the Americans and British made the case for how important it was to have a trial to, to show that we were being fair, but also to document the history, what had actually happened. And just just understanding that and, and getting a window into that would be a, a remarkable education. Definitely. Judge Bebas, thank Good. you so much for joining me. All right. Thanks. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Christmas edition. I'm going to try to stump my guest host, Kevin. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, now let me preface this by saying I really had to dig deep to find Christmas-related Supreme Trivia because this is the third year in a row that I've done Supreme Trivia with a Christmas theme. Um, So, you know, Lynch v. Donnelly, you're not going to get that one. (laughs) But hopefully these will be fun. Okay, first question. While on the appeals court, this justice wrote an opinion upholding Jersey City's holiday display that included a nativity scene, a menorah, a Christmas tree, Frosty the Snowman, and Kwanzaa symbols on the tree. Is this a justice who's currently sitting? Yes. Is, is it Justice Alito? That is correct. I appreciate the Jersey City giveaway. The case was ACLU of New Jersey, X-Rail Lander versus 
Schundler 1999 decision. And this very interesting sounding display uh, fits within the Lynch v. Donnelly three reindeer rule. (laughs) Okay, next question. This classic holiday movie involves a court ruling on who the real Santa Claus is. I couldn't tell you. There have been a few versions of it. The first one was in the 1940s. I'm I'm really spectacularly illiterate where Christmas movies are concerned. <laughs> it's Miracle on 34th Street. Okay. And uh, Natalie Wood was in the 1947 version. Anyway, moving on. Now, this is an international question. The Norwegian Supreme Court upheld the government's herd reduction policy requiring the slaughter of this animal just days before Christmas. Reindeer. <laughs> yes. It's it's awful. Uh, so a reindeer herder was ordered to put down dozens of his herd shortly before Christmas in 2017 as part of the country's effort to prevent overgrazing of the Norwegian tundra. Um, but, I mean, as awful as this sounds, apparently the Norwegian government has been trying to cap reindeer herds at 75. And this gentleman had a herd of 400 reindeer. Wow. So, you know, I, I, I was sad Sounds to like hear the herder's fault. about the, this, you know, slaughter of reindeer right before Christmas. Um, but he was really going above and beyond in terms of uh, mm. how many reindeer he had. OK, final question. In uh, Ganulin versus United States, a district court in Ohio upheld the establishment of Christmas Day as a legal public holiday, citing this beloved children's book in her ruling. Christmas children's book. Hmm. It's been turned into a movie. Actually, several movies. The Polar Express? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good guess. It's it's um, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Ah. So Judge uh, Susan DeLotte began her opinion in verse, which uh, concluded, The court, having read the lessons of Lynch, refuses to play the role of the Grinch. Uh, so I'll tweet out a link to uh, to that opinion because the, the full verse that opens her her opinion is, is pretty entertaining to read. Um, well, these were... These were difficult, and you know I think getting two out of four correct uh, was a pretty good. Not pretty a bad good showing. Record. Yeah, definitely. I um, came in with Lynch versus Donnelly in my pocket. I was so ready. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've asked too many questions about that in the past. Um, or like County of Allegheny, like anything. Yeah, yeah, I have asked about that one as well, and you know things about the the court's uh, you know traditional Christmas party, and right. which justices wouldn't go to it in the past right. because they like to keep. Marsha Coyle has a great piece um, on some fraught racial tensions that surrounded the Supreme Court Christmas party in the 1940s and the the court's um, effective refusal to desegregate it uh, shortly in advance of Brown versus Board. Yes, they ended up canceling the Christmas party one right. year because certain justices would not allow the the messengers who were um, – most of them I think were African-American. They wouldn't allow them to come to the Christmas party. Right. So they didn't have one that year. So some justices were definitely being Grinches yeah. uh, and more than that. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure to be with you. So this is the last episode of the year. So here's wishing you a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year from SCOTUS 101. Thank Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans. The Leah Rampersad and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.